I led them here, Flint thought. This is my responsibility. I'm the eldest. I'll get them out. The dwarf hefted his battle-axe and yelled a challenge to the elven warriors before him, but they just laughed. Angrily, Flint strode forward, only to find himself walking stiffly. His knee-joints were swollen and hurt abominably. His gnarled fingers trembled with a palsy that made him lose his grip on the battle-axe. His breath came short. And then Flint knew why the elves weren't attacking. They were letting old age finish him. Even as he realized this, Flint felt his mind begin to wander. His vision blurred. Patting his vest pocket, he wondered where he had put those confounded spectacles— a shape loomed before him, a familiar shape. Was it Tika? Without his glasses, he couldn't see. Gold Moon ran among the twisted, tortured trees. Lost and alone, she searched desperately for her friends. Far away, she heard Riverwind calling for her, above the ringing clash of swords. Then she heard his call cut off in a bubble of agony. Frantically, she dashed forward, fighting her way through the brambles until her hands and face were bleeding. At last she found Riverwind. The warrior lay upon the ground, pierced by many arrows, arrows she recognized. Running to him, she knelt beside him. Heal him, Mishikal, she prayed, as she had prayed so often. But nothing happened. The color did not return to Riverwind's ashen face. His eyes remained locked, staring fixedly into the green-tinged sky. Why don't you answer? Heal him! Goldmoon cried to the gods. And then she knew. No! she screamed. Punish me! I am the one who has doubted. I am the one who has questioned. I saw Tarsis destroyed, children dying in agony. How could you allow that? I try to have faith, but I cannot help doubting when I see such horrors. Do not punish him. Weeping, she bent over the lifeless body of her husband. She did not see the elven warriors closing in around her. Tasselhoff, fascinated by the horrible wonders around him, wandered off the path and then discovered that Somehow, his friends had managed to lose him. The undead did not bother him. They who fed off fear felt no fear in his small body. Finally, after roaming here and there for nearly a day, the kender reached the doors to the Tower of the Stars. Here his light-hearted journey came to a sudden halt, for he had found his friends, one of them at least. Backed up against the closed doors, Tika fought for her life against a host of misshapen, nightmare-begotten foes. Tass saw that if she could get inside the tower she would be safe, dashing forward, his small body flitting easily through the melee. He reached the door and began to examine the lock while Tika held the elves back with her wildly swinging sword. Hurry, Tass! she cried breathlessly. It was an easy lock to open, with such a simplistic trap to protect it. Tass was surprised that the elves even bothered. I should have this lock picked in seconds, he announced. Just as he set to work, however, something bumped him from behind. 
causing him to tumble. Hey! He shouted at Tika irritably, turning around. Be a little more careful. He stopped short, horrified. Tika lay at his feet, blood flowing into her red curls. No, not Tika, Tass whispered. Maybe she was only wounded. Maybe if he got her inside the tower, someone could help her. Tears dimmed his vision. His hands shook. I got to hurry, Tass thought frantically. Why won't this open? It's so simple. Furious, he tore at the lock. He felt a small prick in his finger just as the lock clicked. The door to the tower began to swing open, but Tasselhoff just stared at his finger where a tiny spot of blood glistened. He looked back at the lock where a small golden needle sparkled. A simple lock, a simple trap. He'd sprung them both. And as the first effects of the poison surged with a terrible warmness through his body, he looked down to see he was too late. Tika was dead. Raislin and his brother made their way through the forest without injury. Caramon watched in growing amazement as Raislin drove back the evil creatures that assailed them, sometimes with feats of incredible magic, sometimes through the sheer force of his will. Raislin was kind and gentle and solicitous. Caramon was forced to stop frequently as the day waned. By twilight, it was all Caramon could do to drag one foot in front of the other, even leaning upon his brother for support. And as Caramon grew ever weaker, Raislin grew stronger. Finally, when night's shadows fell, bringing a merciful end to the tortured green day, the twins reached the tower. Here they stopped. Caramon was feverish and in pain. I've got to rest, raced, he gasped. Put me down. Certainly, my brother, Raislin said gently. He helped Caramon lean against the pearl wall of the tower then regarded his brother with cool, glittering eyes. Farewell, Caraman, he said. Caraman looked at his twin in disbelief. Within the shadows of the trees the warrior could see the undead elves who had followed them at a respectful distance creep closer as they realized the mage who had warded them off was leaving. Raced, Caraman said slowly. You can't leave me here. I can't fight them. I don't have the strength. I need you. Perhaps. But you see, my brother, I no longer need you. I have gained your strength. Now, finally, I am who I was meant to be. But for nature's cruel trick. One whole person. As Caramon stared, uncomprehending, Raislin turned to leave. Raced! Caramon's agonized cry halted him. Raislin stopped and gazed back at his twin, his golden eyes all that were visible from within the depths of his black hood. How does it feel to be weak and afraid, my brother? He asked softly. Turning, 
Raceland walked to the tower entrance where Tika and Tass lay dead. Raceland stepped over the Kender's body and vanished into the darkness. Sturm and Tanis and Kityara, reaching the tower, saw a body lying on the grass at its base. Phantom shapes of undead elves were starting to surround it, shrieking and yelling, hacking at it with their cold swords. Caraman! Tanis cried, heart sick. And where's his brother? Sturm asked with a sidelong glance at Kityara. Left him to die, no doubt. Tanis shook his head as they ran forward to aid the warrior. Wielding their swords, Sturm and Kityara kept the elves at bay while Tanis knelt beside the mortally wounded warrior. Caraman lifted his glazed eyes and met Tanis's, barely recognizing him through the bloody haze that dimmed his vision. He tried desperately to talk. Protect Raceland, Tanis. Caraman choked on his own blood. Since I won't be there now. Watch over him. Watch over Raceland, Tanis repeated furiously. He left you here to die. Tanis held Caraman in his arms. Caraman closed his eyes wearily. No. You're wrong, Tanis. I send him away. The warrior's head slumped forward. Night's shadows closed over them. The elves had disappeared. Sturm and Kit came to stand beside the dead warrior. What did I tell you? Sturm asked harshly. Poor Caraman, Kityara whispered, bending down near him. Somehow I always guessed it would end this way. She was silent for a moment then spoke softly. So my little Raceland has become truly powerful, she mused, almost to herself. At the cost of your brother's life. Kityara looked at Tanis as if perplexed at his meaning. Then, shrugging, she glanced down at Caraman, who lay in a pool of his own blood. Poor kid, she said softly. Sturm, covered Caraman's body with his cloak. Then they sought the entrance to the tower. Tanis, Sturm said, pointing. Oh, no. Not Tass, Tanis murmured. Antika. The Kender's body lay just inside the doorway, his small limbs twisted by convulsions from the poison. Near him lay the barmaid, her red curls matted with blood. Tanis knelt beside them, one of the Kender's packs had opened in his death throes, its contents scattered. Tanis caught sight of a glint of gold. Reaching down, he picked up the ring of elven make, carved in the shape of ivy leaves. His vision blurred, tears filled his eyes as he covered his face with his hands. There's nothing we can do, Tanis. Sturm put his hand on his friend's shoulder. We've got to keep going and put an end to this. If I do nothing else, I'll live to kill Raislin. Death is in the mind. This is a dream, Tanis repeated. But it was Raislin's words he was remembering, and he'd seen what the mage had become. I will wake up, he thought, bending the full force of his will to believing it was a dream. But when he opened his eyes, 
the kender's body still lay on the floor. Clasping the ring in his hand, Tanis followed Kit and Sturm into a dank, slime-covered marble hallway. Paintings, hung in golden frames upon marble walls, tall stained-glass windows let in a lurid, ghastly light. The hallway might have been beautiful once, but now even the paintings on the walls appeared distorted, portraying horrifying visions of death. Gradually, as the three walked, they became aware of a brilliant green light emanating from a room at the end of the corridor. They could feel a malevolence radiate from that green light, beating upon their faces with the warmth of a perverted sun. The center of the evil, Tanis said, anger filled his heart, anger, grief, and a bursting desire for revenge. He started to run forward, but the green-tainted air seemed to press upon him, holding him back until each step was an effort. Next to him, Kitiara staggered. Tanis put an arm around her, though he could barely find the strength to move himself. Kit's face was drenched with sweat. The dark hair curled around her damp forehead. Her eyes were wide with fear. The first time Tanis ever saw her afraid. Sturm's breath came in gasps as the knight struggled forward, weighted down by his armor. At first they seemed to make no progress at all, then slowly they realized they were inching forward, drawing nearer and nearer the green-lit room. Its bright light was now painful to their eyes, and movement exacted a terrible toll. Exhaustion claimed them, muscles ached, lungs burned. Just as Tanis realized he could not take another step, he heard a voice call his name. Lifting his aching head, he saw Lorana standing in front of him, her elven sword in her hand. The heaviness seemingly had no effect on her at all, for she ran to him with a glad cry, Tantalus! You're all right. I've been waiting. She broke off, her eyes on the woman clasped in Tanis' arm. Who? Lorana started to ask. Then, suddenly, somehow she knew. This was the human woman, Kitiara, the woman Tanis loved. Lorana's face went white, then red. Lorana. Tanis began feeling confusion and guilt sweep over him, hating himself for causing her pain. Tanis, Sturm! Kitiara cried, pointing. Startled by the fear in her voice, all of them turned, staring down the green-lit marble corridor. Rikustzaru, Degnya! Sturm intoned in Solanic. At the end of the corridor loomed a gigantic green dragon. His name was Cyan Bloodbane, and he was one of the largest dragons on Kryn. Only the Great Red herself was larger. Snaking his head through a doorway, he blotted out the blinding green light with his hulking body. Cyan smelled steel and human flesh and elven blood. 
He peered with fiery eyes at the group. They could not move. Overcome with the dragon fear, they could only stand and stare as the dragon crashed through the doorway, shattering the marble wall as easily as if it had been baked mud. His mouth gaping wide, Cyan moved down the corridor. There was nothing they could do. Their weapons dangled from hands gone nerveless. Their thoughts were of death. But even as the dragon neared, a dark, shadowy figure crept from the deeper shadows of an unseen doorway and came to stand before them, facing them. Raislin, Sturm said quietly, By all the gods, you will pay for your brother's life. Forgetting the dragon, remembering only Caraman's lifeless body, the knight sprang forward toward the mage, his sword raised. Raislin just stared at him coldly. Kill me, knight, and you doom yourself and the others to death. For through my magic and my magic alone will you be able to defeat Cyan Bloodbane. Hold, Sturm! Though his soul was filled with loathing, Tannis knew the mage was right. He could feel Raceland's power radiate through the black robes. We need his help. No! Sturm said, shaking his head and backing away as Raceland neared the group. I said before, I will not rely on his protection, not now. Farewell, Tannis. Before any of them could stop him, Sturm walked past Raceland towards Cyan Bloodbane. The great dragon's head wove back and forth in eager anticipation of this first challenge to his power since he had conquered Sylvanesti. Tannis clutched Raistlin. Do something! The knight is in my way. Whatever spell I cast will destroy him too. Raistlin answered. Storm! Tannis shouted, his voice echoing mournfully. The knight hesitated. He was listening, but not to Tannis's voice. What he heard was the clear clarion call of a trumpet. Its music cold as the air from the snow-covered mountains of his homeland. Pure and crisp, the trumpet call rose bravely above the darkness and death and despair to pierce his heart. Sturm answered the trumpet's call with a glad battle cry. He raised his sword, the sword of his father, its antique blade twined with the kingfisher and the rose. Silver moonlight streaming through a broken window caught the sword in a pure white radiance that shredded the noxious green air. Again the trumpet sounded, and again Sturm answered, but this time his voice faltered, for the trumpet call he heard had changed tone. No longer sweet and pure, it was braying and harsh and shrill. No! Sturm thought in horror as he neared the dragon. Those were the horns of the enemy. He had been lured into a trap. Around him now, he could see draconian soldiers creeping from behind the dragon, laughing cruelly at his gallibility. Sturm stopped, gripping his sword in a hand that was sweating inside its glove. The dragon loomed above him, a creature undefeatable, surrounded by masses of its troops, slavering and licking its jowls with its curled tongue. Fear knotted Sturm's stomach. 
His skin grew cold and clammy. The horn call sounded a third time, terrible and evil. It was all over. It had all been for nothing. Death, ignominious defeat, awaited him. Despair descending. He looked around fearfully. Where was Tannis? He needed Tannis, but he could not find him. Desperately, he repeated the code of the knights. My honor is my life. But the words sounded hollow and meaningless in his ears. He was not a knight. What did the code mean to him? He had been living a lie. Sturm's sword arm wavered, then dropped. His sword fell from his hand and he sank to his knees, shivering and weeping like a child, hiding his head from the terror before him. With one swipe of his shining talons, Cyan Bloodbane ended Sturm's life, impaling the knight's body upon a blood-stained claw. Disdainfully, Cyan shook the wretched human to the floor while the Draconian swept shrieking toward the knight's still-living body, intent upon hacking it to pieces. But they found their way blocked. A bright figure, shining silver in the moonlight, ran to the knight's body. Reaching down swiftly, Lorana lifted Sturm's sword, then straightening. She faced the Draconians. Touch him and you will die, she said through her tears. Lorana! Tanis screamed and tried to run forward to help her, but Draconians sprang at him. He slashed at them desperately, trying to reach the elf maid. Just when he had won through, he heard Kitiara call his name, whirling. He saw her being beaten back by four draconians. The half-elf stopped in agony, hesitating, and at that moment Lorana fell across Sturm's body, her own body pierced by draconian swords. No, Lorana! Tanis shouted. Starting to go to her, he heard Kitiara cry out again. He stopped, turning. Clutching at his head, he stood irresolute and helpless, forced to watch as Kitiara fell beneath the enemy. The half-elf sobbed in a frenzy, feeling himself begin to sink into madness, longing for death to end this pain. He clutched the magic sword of Kithcanon and rushed toward the dragon, his one thought to kill or be killed. But Raceland blocked his path, standing in front of the dragon like a black obelisk. Tanis fell to the floor, knowing his death was fixed. Clasping the small golden ring firmly in his hand, he waited to die. Then he heard the mage chanting strange and powerful words. He heard the dragon roar in rage. The two were battling, but Tanis didn't care. With eyes closed fast, he blotted out the sounds around him, blotted out life. Only one thing remained real, the golden ring he held tightly in his hand. Suddenly, Tannis became acutely conscious of the ring pressing into his palm. The metal was cool, its edges rough. He could feel the golden, twisted ivy leaves bite into his flesh, Tannis closed his hand, squeezing the ring. The gold bit into his flesh, bit deeply. Pain. Real pain. I am dreaming. 
Tanis opened his eyes. Solinari's silver moonlight flooded the tower, mingled with the red beams of Lunitari. He was lying on a cold, marble floor. His hand was clasped tightly, so tightly, that pain had wakened him. Pain! The ring! The dream! Remembering the dream, Tanis sat up in terror and looked around. But the hall was empty except for one other person. Raislin, slumped against a wall, coughing. The half-elf staggered to his feet and walked shakily toward Raislin. As he drew nearer he could see blood on the mage's lips. The blood gleamed red in Lunitari's light, as red as the robes that covered Raislin's frail, shivering body. The dream. Tanis opened his hand. It was empty. Chapter 11 The Dream Ends, The Nightmare Begins The half-elf stared around the hallway. It was as empty as his hand. The bodies of his friends were gone. The dragon was gone. Wind blew through a shattered wall, fluttering Raceland's red robes about him, scattering dead aspen leaves along the floor. The half-elf walked over to Raceland, catching the young mage in his arms as he collapsed. Where are they? Tanis asked, shaking Raceland. Lorana, Sturm, and the others, your brother. Are they dead? He glanced around. And the dragon? The dragon is gone. The orb sent the dragon away when it realized it could not defeat me. Pushing himself from Tanis's grasp, Raceland stood alone, huddled against the marble wall. It could not defeat me as I was. A child could defeat me now, he said bitterly. As for the others, he shrugged. I do not know. He turned his strange eyes on Tanis. You lived, half-elf, because your love was strong. I lived because of my ambition. We clung to reality in the midst of the nightmare. Who can say with the others? Caraman's alive, then, Tanis said. Because of his love. With his last breath he begged me to spare your life. Tell me, mage, was this future you say we saw irreversible? Why ask? Raceland said wearily. Would you kill me, Tanis? No. I don't know, Tanis said softly, thinking of Caraman's dying words. Perhaps. Raceland smiled bitterly. Save your energy, he said. The future changes as we stand here. Else we are the game pieces of the gods, not their heirs, as we have been promised, but... The mage pushed himself away from the wall. This is far from over. We must find Lorak and the dragon orb. Raceland shuffled down the hall, leaning heavily upon the staff of Magius, its crystal lighting the darkness now that the green light had died. 
Green light. Tannis stood in the hallway, lost in confusion, trying to wake up, trying to separate the dream from reality. For the dream seemed much more real than any of this did now. He stared at the shattered wall. Surely there had been a dragon. And a blinding green light at the end of the corridor. But the hallway was dark. Night had fallen. It had been morning when they started. The moons had not been up, yet now they were full. How many nights had passed, how many days? Then Tannis heard a booming voice at the other end of the corridor, near the doorway. Raced? The mage stopped. His shoulder slumped. Then he turned slowly. My brother, he whispered. Caraman, alive and apparently uninjured, stood in the doorway, outlined against the starry night. He stared at his twin. Then Tannis heard Raceland sigh, softly. I am tired, Caraman. The mage coughed, then drew a wheezing breath. And there is still much to be done before this nightmare is ended. Before the three moons set. Raceland extended his thin arm. I need your help, brother. Tannis heard Caraman heave a shuddering sob. The big man ran into the room, his sword clanking at his thigh. Reaching his brother, he put his arm around him. Raceland leaned on Caraman's strong arm. Together, the twins walked down the cold hallway and through the shattered wall toward the room where Tannis had seen the green light and the dragon. His heart, heavy with foreboding, Tannis followed them. The three entered the audience room of the Tower of the Stars. Tannis looked at it curiously. He had heard of its beauty all his life. The Tower of the Sun in Qualinost had been built in remembrance of this tower, the Tower of the Stars. The two were alike, yet not alike. One was filled with light. One filled with darkness. He stared around. The tower soared above him in marble spirals that shimmered with a pearly radiance. It had been built to collect moonlight as the Tower of the Sun collected sunlight, windows carved into the tower were faceted with gems that caught and magnified the light of the two moons, Solinari and Lunitari, making red and silver moonbeams dance in the chamber. But now the gems were broken. The moonlight that filtered in was distorted, the silver turning to the pale white of a corpse, the red to blood. Tanis, shivering, looked straight up to the top. In Qualinost there were murals on the ceiling, portraying the sun, the constellation, and the two moons, but here there was nothing but a carved hole in the top of the tower. Through the hole he could see only empty blackness. The stars did not shine. It was as if a perfectly round black sphere had appeared in the starry darkness, before he could ponder what this portended, he heard Raceland speak softly, and he turned. There, 
In the shadows at the front of the audience chamber was Alhanna's father, Lorak, the elf king. His shrunken and cadaverous body almost disappeared in a huge stone throne, fancifully carved with birds and animals. It must once have been beautiful, but now the animals' heads were skulls. Lorak sat motionless, his head thrown back, his mouth wide in a silent scream. His hand rested upon a round crystal globe. Is he alive? Tanis asked in horror. Yes, Raistlin answered. Undoubtedly to his sorrow. What's wrong with him? He is living in a nightmare, Raistlin answered, pointing to Lorak's hand. There is the dragon orb. Apparently he tried to take control of it. He was not strong enough. So the orb seized control of him. The orb called Cyan Bloodbane here to guard Sylvanasty, and the dragon decided to destroy it by whispering nightmares into Lorak's ear. Lorak's belief in the nightmare was so strong, his empathy with his land so great, that the nightmare became reality. Thus, it was his dream we were living when we entered. His dream, and our own. For we too came under the dragon's control when we stepped into Sylvanasty. You knew we faced this, Tanis accused, grabbing Raceland by the shoulder and spinning him around. You knew what we were walking into, there on the shores of the river. Tanis... Caramon said warningly, removing the half-elf's hand, leave him alone. Perhaps, Raceland said, rubbing his shoulder, his eyes narrow, perhaps not. I need not reveal my knowledge, or its source, to you. Before he could reply, Tanis heard a moan, a sound as if it came from the base of the throne, Casting Raistlin an angry glance, Tanis turned quickly from him and stared into the shadows. Warily he approached, his sword drawn. Alhanna. The elf maid crouched at her father's feet, her head in his lap, weeping. She did not seem to hear Tanis. He went to her, Alhanna. He said gently. She looked up at him without recognition. Alhanna, he said again. She blinked, then shuddered and grabbed hold of his hand as if clutching at reality. Half-elven, she whispered. How did you get here? What happened? I heard the mage say it was a dream. Alhanna answered, shivering at the memory, and I... I refused to believe in the dream. I woke, but only to find the nightmare was real. My beautiful land filled with horrors. She hid her face in her hands. Tanis knelt beside her and held her close. I made my way here. It took days through the nightmare. She gripped Tanis tightly. When I entered the tower, the dragon caught me. He brought me here, to my father, thinking to make Lorak murder me. 
but not even in this nightmare could my father harm his own child. So Sion tortured him with visions of what he would do to me. And you, you saw them too. Tannis whispered, stroking the woman's long, dark hair with a soothing hand. After a moment, Alhanna spoke. It wasn't so bad. I knew it was nothing but a dream. But to my poor father it was reality. She began to sob. The half-elf motioned to Caraman. Take Alhanna to a room where she can lie down. We'll do what we can for her father. I will be all right, my brother, Raceland said in answer to Caraman's look of concern. Do as Tannis says. Come, Alhanna, Tannis urged her, helping her stand. She staggered with weariness. Is there a place you can rest? You'll need your strength. At first she started to argue. Then she realized how weak she was. Take me to my father's room she said. I'll show you the way. Caraman put his arm around her, and slowly they began to walk from the chamber. Tannis turned back to Lorak. Raceland stood before the elf king. Tannis heard the mage speaking softly to himself. What is it? The half-elf said quietly. Is he dead? Who? Raceland started, blinking. He saw Tannis looking at Lorak. Oh, Lorak, no, I do not believe so, not yet. Tannis realized the mage had been staring at the dragon orb. Is the orb still in control? Tannis asked nervously, his eyes on the object they had gone through so much to find. The dragon orb was a huge globe of crystal, at least twenty-four inches across, it sat upon a stand of gold that had been carved in hideous, twisted designs, mirroring the twisted, tormented life of Sylvanesti. Though the orb must have been the source of the brilliant green light, there was now only a faint, iridescent, pulsing glow at its heart. Raceland's hands hovered over the globe, but, Tannis noted, he was careful not to touch it as he chanted the spidery words of magic. A faint aura of red began to surround the globe. Tannis backed away. Do not fear, Raceland whispered, watching as the aura died. It is my spell. The globe is enchanted. Still, its magic has not died with the passing of the dragon, as I thought possible. It is still in control, however. Control of Lorak. Control of itself. It has released Lorak. Did you do this? Tannis murmured. Did you defeat it? The orb is not defeated, Raceland said sharply. With help, I was able to defeat the dragon. Realizing Cyan Bloodbane was losing, the orb sent him away. It let go of Lorak, because it could no longer use him. But the orb is still... Very powerful, Raceland. Tell me, I have no more to say, Tannis. The young mage coughed. I must conserve my energy. Whose help had Raceland received? What else did he know of this orb? 
Tanis opened his mouth to pursue the subject, then he saw Raceland's golden eyes flicker. The half-elf fell silent. We can free Lorak now, Raceland added. Walking to the elf-king, he gently removed Lorak's hand from the dragon orb, then put his slender fingers to Lorak's neck. He lives, for the time being. The life-beat is weak. You may come closer. But Tanis, his eyes on the dragon orb, held back. Raistlin glanced at the half-elf, amused, then beckoned. Reluctantly, Tanis approached. Tell me one more thing. Can the orb still be of use to us? For long moments, Raistlin was silent. Then, faintly, he replied, Yes, if we dare. Lorak drew a shivering breath, then screamed, a thin, wailing scream, horrible to hear. His hands, little more than living skeletal claws, twisted and writhed. His eyes were tightly closed. In vain, Tanis tried to calm him. Lorak screamed until he was out of breath, and then he screamed, silently. Father! Tanis heard Alhana cry. She reappeared in the doorway of the audience chamber and pushed Karaman aside. Running to her father, she grasped his bony hands in hers. Kissing his hands, she wept, pleading for him to be silent. Rest, father, she repeated over and over. The nightmare is ended. The dragon is gone. You can sleep, father. But the man's screaming continued. In the name of the gods! Caraman said as he came up to them, his face pale. I can't take much of this. Father! Alhana pleaded, calling to him again and again. Slowly, her beloved voice penetrated the twisted dreams that lingered on in Lorak's tortured mind. Slowly, his screams died to little more than horrified whimpers, then, as if fearing what he might see, he opened his eyes. Alhana, my child, alive. He lifted a shaking hand to touch her cheek. It cannot be. I saw you die, Alhana. I saw you die a hundred times, each more horrifying than the last. He killed you, Alhana. He wanted me to kill you, but I could not. Though I know not why, as I have killed so many. Then he caught sight of Tanis, his eyes flared open, shining with hatred. You! Lorak snarled, rising from his chair, his gnarled hands clutching the sides of the throne. You, half-elf! I killed you, or tried to. I must protect Sylvan Aesti. I killed you. I killed those with you. Then his eyes went to Raistlin. The look of hatred was replaced by one of fear. Trembling, he shrank away from the mage. But you, you I could not kill. Lorak's look of terror changed to confusion. No, he cried. You are not he. Your robes are not black. Who are you? His eyes went back to Tanis. And you, you are not a threat. What have I done? He moaned, Don't, father. 
Alhana pleaded, soothing him, stroking his fevered face. You must rest now. The nightmare is ended. Sylvanesti is safe. Caraman lifted Lorak in his strong arms and carried him to his chambers. Alhana walked next to him. Her father's hand held fast in her own. Safe, Tanis thought, glancing out the windows at the tormented trees. Although the undead elven warriors no longer stalked the woods, the tortured shapes Lorak had created in his nightmare still lived. The trees, contorted in agony, still wept blood. Who will live here now? Tanis wondered sadly. The elves will not return. Evil things will enter this dark forest and Lorak's nightmare will become reality. Thinking of the nightmarish forest, Tanis suddenly wondered where his other friends were. Were they all right? What if they had believed the nightmare? As Raceland said, would they have truly died? His heart sinking, he knew he would have to go back into that demented forest and search for them. Just as the half-elf began to try and force his weary body to action, his friends entered the tower room. I killed him! Tika cried, catching sight of Tannis. Her eyes were wide with grief and terror. No, don't touch me, Tannis. You don't know what I've done. I killed Flint. I didn't mean to, Tannis, I swear. As Caraman entered the room, Tika turned to him, sobbing. I killed Flint, Caraman. Don't come near me. Hush, Caraman said gently, enfolding her in his big arms. It was a dream, Tika. That's what Raced says. The dwarf was never here. Shh. Stroking Tika's red curls, he kissed her. Tika clung to him. Caraman clung to her, each finding comfort with the other. Gradually, Tika's sobs lessened. My friend, Goldmoon said, reaching out to embrace Tanis. Seeing the grave, somber expression on her face, the half-elf held her tightly, glancing questioningly at Riverwind. What had each of them dreamed? But the plainsman only shook his head, his own face pale and grieved. Then it occurred to Tanis that each must have lived through his or her own dream, and he suddenly remembered Kitiara. How real had she been? And Lorana, dying. Closing his eyes, Tanis laid his head against gold moons. He felt river winds' strong arms surround them both. Their love blessed him. The horror of the dream began to recede. And then Tanis had a terrifying thought. Lorak's dream became reality. Would theirs? Behind him, Tanis heard Raislin begin to cough. Clutching his chest, the mage sank down onto the steps leading up to Lorak's throne. Tanis saw Caraman still holding Tika glance at his brother in concern, but Raislin ignored his brother. Gathering his robes around him, the mage lay down on the cold floor and closed his eyes in exhaustion. Sighing, Caraman pressed Tika closer. Tanis 
watched her small shadow become part of Caraman's larger one as they stood together, their bodies outlined in the distorted silver and red beams of the fractured moonlight. We all must sleep, Tannis thought, feeling his own eyes burn. Yet how can we? How can we ever sleep again? Chapter 12 Visions Shared The Death of Lorak Yet, finally, they slept. Huddled on the stone floor of the Tower of the Stars, they kept as near each other as possible. While as they slept, others in lands cold and hostile, lands far from Sylvanesti, wakened. Lorana woke first, starting up from a deep sleep with a cry. At first she had no idea where she was. She spoke one word. Sylvanesti. Flint, trembling, woke to find that his fingers still moved. The pains in his legs were no worse than usual. Sturm woke in panic, shaking with terror, for long moments he could only crouch beneath his blankets, shuddering. Then he heard something outside his tent. Starting up, hand on his sword, he crept forward and threw open the tent flap. Oh! Lorana gasped at the sight of his haggard face. I'm sorry, Sturm said. I didn't mean... Then he saw she was shaking so she could scarcely hold her candle. What is it? he asked, alarmed, drawing her out of the cold. I... I know this sounds silly, Lorana said, flushing. But I had the most frightening dream and I couldn't sleep. Shivering, she allowed Sturm to lead her inside the tent. The flame of her candle cast leaping shadows around the tent. Sturm, afraid she might drop it, took it from her. I didn't mean to wake you, but I heard you call out. And my dream was so real. You were in it. I saw you. What is Sylvanesti like? Sturm interrupted abruptly. Lorana stared at him. But that's where I dreamed we were. Why did you ask? Unless... You dreamed of Sylvanesti too. Sturm wrapped his cloak around him, nodding. I... He began, then heard another noise outside the tent. This time he just opened the tent flap. Come in, Flint, he said wearily. The dwarf stumped inside, his face flushed. He seemed embarrassed to find Lorana there, however, and stammered and stamped until Lorana smiled at him. We know, she said. You had a dream. Sylvanesti. Flint coughed, clearing his throat and wiping his face with his hand. Apparently I'm not the only one, he asked, staring narrowly at the other two from beneath his bushy eyebrows. I suppose you... You want me to tell you what I dreamed? No, Sturm said hurriedly, his face pale. No, I do not want to talk about it, ever. Nor I, Lorana said softly. Hesitantly, Flint patted her shoulder. I'm glad, he said gruffly. 
I couldn't talk about mine either. I just wanted to see if it was a dream. It seemed so real I expected to find you both. The dwarf stopped. There was a rustling sound outside. Then Tasselhoff burst excitedly through the tent flap. Did I hear you talking about a dream? I never dream. At least not that I remember. Kender don't much. Oh, I suppose we do. Even animals dream, but... He caught Flynn's eye and came hurriedly back to the original subject. Well, I had the most fantastic dream. Trees crying blood, horrible dead elves going around killing people, Raceland wearing black robes. It was the most incredible thing. And you were there, Sturm, Lorana, and Flint, and everyone died. Well, almost everyone. Raceland didn't, and there was a green dragon. Tasselhoff stopped. What was wrong with his friends? Their faces were deathly pale, their eyes wide. The green dragon, he stammered. Raceland dressed in black. Did I mention that? C quite becoming, actually. Red always makes him look kind of jaundiced, if you know what I mean. You don't. Well, I guess I'll go back to bed. If you don't want to hear any more. He looked around hopefully. No one answered. Well, good night, he mumbled. Backing out of the tent precipitously, he returned to his bed, shaking his head, puzzled. What was the matter with everyone? It was only a dream. For long moments, no one spoke. Then Flint sighed. I don't mind having a nightmare, the dwarf said dourly. But I object to sharing it with a kinder. How do you suppose we all came to have the same dream, and what does it mean? A strange land, Sylvanesti, Lorana said. Taking her candle, she started to leave. Then she looked back. Do you, th do you think it was real? Did they die as we saw? Was Tannis with that human woman, she thought, but didn't ask aloud. We're here, said Sturm. We didn't die. We can only trust the others didn't either, and... He paused. This seems funny, but somehow I know they're all right. Lorana looked at the knight intently for a moment, saw his grave face calm after the initial shock and horror had worn off. She felt herself relax. Reaching out, she took Sturm's strong, lean hand in her own and pressed it silently. Then she turned and left, slipping back into the starlit night. The dwarf rose to his feet. Well, so much for sleep. I'll take my turn at watch now. I'll join you, said Sturm, standing and buckling on his sword belt. I suppose we'll never know. Flint said, why or how we all dreamed the same dream. I suppose not, Sturm agreed. The dwarf walked out of the tent. Sturm started to follow, then stopped, as his eyes caught a glimpse of light. Thinking perhaps that a bit of wick had fallen from Lorana's candle, he bent down to put it out, only to find instead that the jewel Alhana had given him had slipped from his belt and lay upon the ground. Picking it up, he noticed it was gleaming with its own inner light. 
something he'd never seen it do before. I suppose not, Sturm repeated thoughtfully, turning the jewel over and over in his hand. Morning dawned in Sylvanasty for the first time in many long, horrifying months. But only one saw it. Lorak, watching from his bedchamber window, saw the sun rise above the glistening aspens. The others, worn out, slept soundly. Alhana had not left her father's side all night, but exhaustion had overwhelmed her, and she fell asleep, sitting in her chair. Lorak saw the pale sunlight light her face. Her long black hair fell across her face like cracks in white marble. Her skin was torn by thorns, caked with dried blood. He saw beauty, but that beauty was marred by arrogance. She was the epitome of her people. Turning back, he looked outside into Sylvanesti, but found no comfort there. A green, noxious mist still hung over Sylvanesti, as though the ground itself was rotting. This is my doing, he said to himself, his eyes lingering on the twisted, tortured trees, the pitiful misshapen beasts that roamed the land seeking an end to their torment. For over four hundred years, Lorak had lived in this land. He had watched it take shape and flower beneath his hands and the hands of his people. There had been times of trouble, too. Lorak was one of the few still living on Kryn to remember the cataclysm. But the Sylvanasty elves had survived it far better than others in the world, being estranged from other races. They knew why the ancient gods left Kryn. They saw the evil in humankind, although they could not explain why the elven clerics vanished as well. The elves of Sylvanesti heard, of course, via the winds and birds and other mysterious ways, of the sufferings of their cousins, the Qualanesti, following the cataclysm. And though grieved at the tales of rapine and murder, the Sylvanesti asked themselves what could one expect living among humans? They withdrew into the forest, renouncing the outside world and caring little that the outside world renounced them. Thus, Lorak had found it impossible to understand this new evil sweeping out of the north, threatening his homeland. Why should they bother the Sylvanesti? He met with the Dragon High Lords, explaining to them that the Sylvanesti would give them no trouble. The elves believed everyone had the right to live upon Kryn, each in his own unique fashion, evil and good. He talked, and they listened, and, at first, all seemed well. Then the day came when Lorak realized he had been deceived, the day the skies erupted with dragons. The elves were not, after all, caught unprepared. Lorak had lived too long for that. Ships waited to take the people to safety. Lorak ordered them to depart under his daughter's command. Then, when he was alone, he descended to the chambers beneath the Tower of the Stars, where he had secreted the Dragon Orb. Only his daughter 
and the long-lost elven clerics knew of the orb's existence. All others in the world believed it destroyed in the cataclysm. Lorak sat beside it, staring at it for long days. He recalled the warnings of the High Mages, bringing to mind everything he could remember about the orb. Finally, though fully aware that he had no idea how it worked, Lorak decided he had to use it to try and save his land. He remembered the globe vividly, remembered it burning with a swirling, fascinating green light that pulsed and strengthened as he looked at it. And he remembered knowing, almost from the first seconds he had rested his fingers on the globe, that he had made a terrible mistake. He had neither the strength nor the control to command the magic, but by then it was too late. The orb had captured him and held him enthralled. And it had been the most hideous part of his nightmare to be constantly reminded that he was dreaming, yet unable to break free. And now the nightmare had become waking reality. Lorak bowed his head, tasting bitter tears in his mouth. Then he felt gentle hands upon his shoulders. Father, I cannot bear to see you weep. Come away from the window, come to bed. The land will be beautiful once more in time. You will help to shape it. But Alhanna could not look out the window without a shudder. Lorak felt her tremble and smiled sadly. Will our people return? Alhanna. He stared out into the green that was not the vibrant green of life, but that of death and decay. Of course, Alhanna said quickly. Lorak patted her hand. A lie, my child. Since when have we elves lied to each other? I think perhaps we may have always lied to ourselves, Alhanna murmured, recalling what she had learned of Gold Moon's teaching. The ancient gods did not abandon Crin, father. A cleric of Mishikal the healer traveled with us and told us what she had learned. I... I did not want to believe... Father, I was jealous. She is a human, after all. And why should the gods come to the humans with this hope? But I see now the gods are wise. They came to humans because we elves would not accept them. Through our grief, living in this place of desolation, we will learn, as you and I have learned, that we can no longer live within the world and live apart from the world. The elves will work to rebuild not only this land, but all lands ravaged by the evil. Lorak listened. His eyes turned from the tortured landscape to his daughter's face, pale and radiant as the silver moon, and he reached out his hand to touch her. You will bring them back. Our people? Yes, father, she promised taking his cold, fleshless hand in her own and holding it fast. We will work and toil. We will ask forgiveness of the gods. We will go out among the peoples of Crin and... Tears flooded her eyes and choked her voice, for she saw Lorak could no longer hear her. His eyes dimmed, 
and he began to sink back in the chair. I give myself to the land, he whispered. Bury my body in the soil, daughter. As my life brought this curse upon it, so perhaps my death will bring its blessing. Lorak's hand slipped from his daughter's grasp. His lifeless eyes stared out into the tormented land of Sylvanasty. But the look of horror on his face faded away, leaving it filled with peace. And Alhanna could not grieve. That night the companions prepared to leave Sylvanasty. They were to travel under the cover of darkness for much of their journey north, since by now they knew the dragon armies controlled the lands they must pass through. They had no maps to guide them. They feared trusting ancient maps any more after their experience with the landlocked seaport city, Tarsus. But the only maps that could be found in Sylvanasty dated back thousands of years. The companions decided to travel north from Sylvanasty blindly, with some hope of discovering a seaport where they could find passage to Sandchrist. They traveled lightly, so they could travel swiftly. Besides, there was little to take. The elves had stripped their country bare of food and supplies when they left. The mage took possession of the dragon orb, a charge no one disputed him. Tanis at first despaired of how they could carry the massive crystal with them, it was nearly two feet in diameter and extraordinarily heavy. But the evening before they left, Alhanna came to Raistlin, a small sack in her hand. My father carried the orb in this sack. I always thought it was odd, considering the orb's size. But he said the sack was given to him in the Tower of High Sorcery. Perhaps this will help you. The mage reached out his thin hand to grasp it eagerly. He murmured and watched in satisfaction as the nondescript bag began to glow with a pale pink light. Yes, it is enchanted, he whispered. Then he lifted his gaze to Caraman. Go and bring me the orb. Caraman's eyes opened wide in horror. Not for any treasure in this world, the big man said with an oath. Bring me the orb, Raislin ordered, staring angrily at his brother, who still shook his head. Oh, don't be a fool, Caraman! Raislin snapped in exasperation. The orb cannot hurt those who do not attempt to use it. Believe me, my dear brother, you do not have the power to control a cockroach, let alone a dragon orb. But it might trap me, Caraman protested. Bah! It seeks those with... Raceland stopped suddenly. Yes, Tanis said quietly. Go on. Who does it seek? People with intelligence, Raceland snarled. Therefore I believe the members of this party are safe. Bring me the orb, Caraman. Or perhaps you want to carry it yourself. Or you, half-elf, or you, cleric of Michigal. Caraman glanced uncomfortably at Tanis, and the half-elf realized that the big man was seeking his approval. It was an odd move for the twin, who had always done what Raceland commanded without question. 
Tannis saw that he wasn't the only one who noticed Caraman's mute appeal. Raceland's eyes glittered in rage. Now more than ever, Tannis felt wary of the mage, distrusting Raceland's strange and growing power. It's illogical, he argued with himself. A reaction to a nightmare, nothing more. But that didn't solve his problem. What should he do about the dragon orb? Actually, he realized ruefully, he had little choice. Raceland's the only one with the knowledge and the skill and... Let's face it, the guts to handle that thing, Tannis said grudgingly. I say he should take it. Unless one of you wants the responsibility. No one spoke. Though Riverwind shook his head, frowning darkly. Tannis knew the plainsman would leave the orb and Raceland as well here in Sylvanasty, if he had the choice. Go ahead, Caraman, Tannis said. You're the only one strong enough to lift it. Reluctantly, Caraman went to fetch the orb from its golden stand. His hands shook as he reached out to touch it, but when he laid his hands upon it, nothing happened. The globe did not change in appearance. Sighing in relief, Caraman lifted the orb, grunting from the weight, and carried it back to his brother, who held the sack open. Drop it in the bag, Raceland ordered. What? Caraman's jaw sagged as he stared from the giant orb to the small bag in the mage's frail hands. I can't, Raced. It won't fit in there. It'll smash. The big man fell silent as Raceland's eyes flared golden in the dying light of day. No. Caraman, wait. Tannis leaped forward, but this time Caraman did as Raceland commanded. Slowly, his eyes held fast by his brother's intense gaze, Caraman dropped the dragon orb. The orb vanished. What? Where? Tannis glared at Raceland suspiciously. In the sack. The mage replied calmly, holding forth the small bag. See for yourself, if you do not trust me. Tannis peered into the bag. The orb was inside, and it was the true dragon orb, all right. He had no doubt. He could see the swirling mist of green, as though some faint life stirred within. It must have shrunk, he thought in awe but the orb appeared to be the same size as always, giving Tannis the fearful impression that it was he who had grown. Shuddering, Tannis stepped back. Raceland gave the drawstring on the top of the bag a quick jerk, snapping it shut. Then, glancing at them distrustfully, he slipped the bag within his robes, secreting it in one of his numerous hidden pockets and began to turn away, but Tannis stopped him. Things can never again be the same between us. Can they? The half-elf asked quietly. Raceland looked at him for a moment, and Tannis saw a brief flicker of regret in the young mage's eyes, a longing for trust and friendship, and a return to the days of youth. No, Raceland whispered. But such was the price I paid. He began to cough. Price? To whom? For what? 
Do not question, half elf. The mage's thin shoulders bent with coughing. Caramon put his strong arm around his brother, and Raceland leaned weakly against his twin. When he recovered from the spasm, he lifted his golden eyes. I cannot tell you the answer, Tannis, because I do not know it myself. Then, bowing his head, he let Caramon lead him away to find what rest he could before their journey. I wish you would reconsider, and let us assist you in the funeral rites for your father, Tanis said to Alhanna as she stood in the door of the Tower of the Stars to bid them farewell. A day will not make a difference to us. Yes, let us, Gold Moon entreated earnestly. I know much about this from our people, for our burial customs are similar to yours, if Tanis has told me correctly. I was a priestess in my tribe, and I presided over the wrapping of the body and the spiced cloths that will preserve it. No, my friends, Alhanna said firmly, her face pale. It was my father's wish that I, I do this alone. This was not quite true, but Alhanna knew how shocked these people would be at the sight of her father's body being consigned to the ground a custom practiced only by goblins and other evil creatures. The thought appalled her. Involuntarily her gaze was drawn to the tortured and twisted tree that was to mark his grave, standing over it like some fearful, carrion bird. Quickly she looked away. Her voice faltered. His tomb is... is long prepared. And I have some experience of these things myself. Do not worry about me, please. Tanis saw the agony in her face, but he could not refuse to honor her request. We understand, Gold Moon said. Then, on impulse, the Guishu plainswoman put her arms around the elven princess and held her as she might have held a lost and frightened child. Alhanna stiffened at first, then relaxed in Gold Moon's compassionate embrace. Be at peace, Gold Moon whispered, stroking back Alhanna's dark hair from her face. Then the plainswoman left. After you bury your father, what then? Tanis asked, as he and Alhanna stood alone together on the steps of the tower. I will return to my people, Alhanna replied gravely. The griffons will come to me, now that the evil in this land is gone, and they will take me to Ergoth. We will do what we can to help defeat this evil. Then we will come home. Tanis glanced around Sylvanesti. Horrifying as it was in the daytime, its terrors at night were beyond description. I know. Alhanna said in answer to his unspoken thoughts. This will be our penance, 